Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. All right. Yeah. Okay, so welcome to, to Spring Retreat 2020, or 2022. Yeah. Going back in time, y'all. It's getting crazy. So guys, they set up a stage like almost just so I could fall off of it. So pray that I don't do that. Um, But I'm so excited for today. Uh, Like Brandon said, there's no way that we could cover everything that the Bible says about family relationships, right? There's 66 books in the Bible and it's jam-packed full of families and jam-packed full of, of doctrinal teaching about relationships. And so this will be hopefully just a, a jumping off part to, to get you started uh, to dive in deeper into the Word of God. Amen. Okay, so every year we carve out some time during the spring uh, just to get away together uh, in the Word together. Uh, and I'm so thankful. If you're a visitor, uh, we're a big family. And, and prioritizing this retreat is a big deal. And whenever we get away together in the Word together and prioritize fellowship, and prioritize just getting saturated in the word of God, God always shows up, doesn't he? And he speaks to us, and he gives us direction and steps forward to move forward in uh, in our lives and in ministry. And so uh, if you're here, I just pray that you'd come determined uh, just to to cast off your week, right? I just came from work. And and man, we got to just determine now to to prepare our hearts, uh, to put off our day, and just to come with expectation to hear from God. Because I believe with all my heart, he's got a word for us. And so this weekend, like Brandon said, we're going to be tackling a relationship series. Uh, I'm excited for the lineup. We've got some just mighty men of God and, and women of God that are teaching this weekend. Uh, and we're going to kick it off with just looking at the relationship dynamics within the family, right? And so we'll just dive right into it. Uh, the, the purpose of the family. So the, the family is the most basic And really, it's the first institution that God established to accomplish his mission here on earth, right? So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see God create Adam and Eve. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 18, it says that the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet, right? And so we see from the very beginning that that God makes Adam Eve. He makes him a wife uh, and, you know... It's awesome, obviously, for for companionship, but even greater than that, we see that God's desire in giving Adam Eve is to fulfill the mission that God had for man, right? That they would be fruitful, that they would multiply, and that they would replenish the earth. And so, you know, the the, the goals of this family, of this marriage, uh, are, you know, listed here in Genesis chapter 2. This dynamic is for edification and support for the work of God that that he had for them. Uh, It's for reproduction. And as we continue to study out the scriptures, it's actually this beautiful picture of the relationships that we have within the family of God, right? And so these two purposes, these three purposes remain at the very center uh, of what the family is to be. God's desire is that family would be at the very heart of his mission, And so much so that he likens our spiritual relationships within the context of the church uh, to that of a family. And so, you know, within the the church, 
We can look around and we can see people that we call mom and dad, right? We've got spiritual mothers and fathers in the faith. And so that's like my grandfather right here. But guys, if it wasn't for Brandon, if it wasn't for Eric, if it wasn't for, for Pastor Dan Renault, there's no way that I'd be here today, right? These are, are men that have invested greatly into me. Uh, these are men that, that are responsible for, for raising me spiritually. Like there, there's no way that, that I'd be standing in front of you had it not been for their investment. And they continue to invest in me. They continue to teach me what it looks like to be a man of God, right? Uh, we can think of spiritual brothers and sisters. I've got people in here like Alex and Uriah, like Jake Bruce, Seth Harper, uh, JJ, you know, Hannah, Lydia. I think about all these people, Melissa, that, that I can look at. And I'm like, man, like, there's nothing that I wouldn't do for these people. They're, they're my brothers and my sisters, right? And, and I, I love those relationships. I'm so thankful for them. Uh, and then there's others where I can look around. And, you know, Paul calls Timothy his son in the faith, and I'm so thankful I can look around, I can see people that I've had the honor to, to lead in Bible study and ministry and discipleship. Uh, I think about Michael Black, man, he was just serving me earlier today. I don't tell you this enough, uh, but I'm, I'm so proud of you. Uh, man, just the God, godly man that, that God's made you to be. It's, uh, yeah, I'm rich, I'm rich. Uh, I think about people like uh, Kelly, I always want to say it, call her Urschel, because I used to call her Urschel. Uh, but but Ke- Kelly Edgar, and what an incredible woman of God, uh, what an incredible wife and minister she's become. And so, you know, we can look at all these relationships dynamic, and we can understand that God uses your role within your family to illustrate what it means to be a part of God's family, right? And, and we see this idea reoccurring throughout Scripture. In First Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, it says that one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection, with all gravity, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God, right? And so we see this idea, this principle, that for leaders within the, the household of God, within the church of God, if you can't lead your own house well, how are you going to lead within the context of the local church? It's a problematic, right? And we see him likening the relationships within our, our family dynamics, within our family relationships, uh, to that within the context of the church, and so the, the, the idea here is that everyone has a role to play within the home, right? Everyone has a role to play within the house of God. God desires for families to support each other, to rejoice together, to mourn together. And likewise, he's created the church similarly to support and to edify each other, for the strong to bear the infirmities of the weak. And as we learn what it means to steward our relationships within our physical families, God will also teach us important principles about stewarding our relationships within our spiritual family. But the reciprocal, the, the opposite of that's also true. If we have dysfunctional relationships within our families, these the same types of dysfunctions, they're going to find their way sleeping into the church, right? We're, we're studying 1 Corinthians, and we're going to see, you know, a, a great deal of that in 1 Corinthians even. And so, you know, the, the family, it's the first institution that God created here on earth to accomplish his ministry here. But we're going to see that the family relationships are always under attack. It's so important for us to take time and to consider this because God established the family in Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and Eve. And by chapter 3, we see Satan's working overtime to destroy marriage and to corrupt their offspring, right? Satan finds Eve. She's separated from her husband, from Adam. And the result was division in marriage. Almost immediately after Satan tempted Eve, Adam is willing to throw his wife under the bus, right? Immediately, he's shifting the blame onto her. 
And even worse, we see this schism, this division within the relationship between them and Christ. By Genesis chapter 4, we see the first sibling relationships, right? We see Cain and Abel, and we're like, man, great, they're, they're brothers. We see the first siblings, and we also see the first murderer, right? We're introduced to the first murderer because flesh is working overtime to prefer self over sibling. Our flesh is working overtime to divide and to break families because the flesh wants what it wants, how it wants it, when it wants it. And it's more interested in preserving self and and, and self-gratification than caring for others. And the result is broken families and a broken perspective of relationships. By Genesis chapter 13, we see families separating and divorcing. We see Abraham and Lot, these these two brothers, right? They're, They're so close. They've been through so much together. And by Genesis chapter 13, we see them going different ways, right? They're going different directions because this world system is working overtime to dismantle the family. Lot would rather follow the way of the world. Lot would rather follow this way of Egypt than follow the way of God. And again, we see the way of this world is always at work dividing and breaking families. And it's completely had its way within our culture and within our society today. And so from the very beginning, we see the family dynamic has been under attack. And and it's only been magnified in today's society. Just just think about it. We look around and we see it over and over again. For instance, the the, the first and most basic institution of marriage is failing at an alarming rate. The divorce statistics over the past 20 years are just devastating, right? We see domestic violence. We see suicide rates are just through the roof. Amongst our generation, we're seeing a surge in individuals who are choosing to abstain from marriage altogether, right? We, we, we saw our, our parents and that it didn't work out, and so, so why even bother? We're seeing a whole generation of people abstain from having children altogether. We've seen this sweep across Europe, uh, and it's just continuing. And instead, there's a focus on career. There's a focus on building an empire for ourselves and our possessions and what we can acquire. Uh, there's a focus on casually flowing in and out of intimate relationships with without really any sort of commitment. And these trends and approaches to relationships in this transactional way, all it points to is self-indulgence. That's what it points to, right? Where God established these relationships for his glory and for his mission to, to function in a sacrificial way based on what we can give to someone else rather than what we can receive from them. And this world only is worried about these temporary pleasures, about how we can indulge ourselves, and ultimately it leaves us empty. It doesn't work. We see it over and over again. It doesn't work. We see fatherlessness and single-parent homes are plaguing our society. I was looking at some of the statistics, and it's crazy. The U.S. Census Bureau says that 23.6 of American children live in fatherless homes. It's about a quarter of the United States, these children live in fatherless homes. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services say that female-led homes with no spouse present have a poverty rate of 47.6%. The National Library of Medicine says that adolescent women from fatherless homes have a higher chance of getting pregnant. And some studies suggest that 70% of inmates, about 70% of inmates, didn't grow up with both parents in the house. Crazy, right? And so here we see a clear problem. Fatherless homes are plaguing our society, and the homes that have fathers often Well, oftentimes the fathers aren't very present. Many fathers are emotionally, physically, and spiritually distant as it regards investing into the lives of their children. They're too busy, focused on their careers. 
They're, they're too busy being stressed out about their finances because they're living beyond their means. They're, they're, they're too busy being stressed out and strained by their marital relationships. They're, they're, they're too busy playing freaking video games to, to hug their daughter or to have meaningful conversations with their sons. And then that plays out just to family dysfunction, right? Family dysfunction is the norm within our society. Sibling rivalry, parental favoritism, passing on sin cycles, holding on to points of bitterness within the family. And as we look at the, the media outlets, all it does is it encourages and cultivates this type of thinking. Within our generation, we've seen the rise of reality TV. Uh, within our generation, we've seen tabloids like TMZ that have created empires by creating and exposing dysfunction within families. And it's all because this world system thrives on drama. It thrives on polarizing parties. It thrives on actively dividing what Christ gave his life up, what he bled out to unite, right? And so here we, we, we see the gravity of this topic, right? This is a very, very big deal. And these things are playing out in our physical families, and the danger is they're seeping into our spiritual families, right? And so this is a big deal to God, and it ought to be a big deal to us. Our flesh, this world system, and its devil God are launching a threefold attack on the family. And so the question today is, are you ready and are you equipped to defend it? Yeah, it's big, it's weighty. And so again, God uses the family to support and to edify ministry, to multiply ministers, and it serves as the most beautiful picture of God's own family. And again, these relationships are always under attack. And so today, we're going to consider these dynamics to gain some insights on how we ought to operate to protect such a beautiful picture, and also how we can grow as ministers within the context of our own families, right? And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive into to the meat of this message. Uh, Lord, I, I do thank you uh, just for, for meeting us today in your word. Uh, and we just see the gravity of this topic. Uh, and we see uh, your, your heart regarding the family that you want it at the very center of your mission. And then we see the dysfunction in our own families, Lord. And we just cry that, that we need your help. Uh, and we want to be used as ministers of reconciliation. And so, Lord, I, we just pray that you would teach us, that you'd grow us, uh, and that we'd find uh, just practical application to your word today. For this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I feel like I should begin by admitting that family relationships can be the most difficult relationships to navigate, right? Is that fair? Like, we could talk to strangers, to our friends, and the idea of ministering to our families is maybe the most terrifying thing, right? Uh, because no one knows you longer, no one's known you better, and no one can hurt you deeper than your family. And so within the family are the greatest opportunities for schisms, but also within the family are the greatest opportunities for God to get glory, right? And so I've been able to, to see this played out on both sides. Uh, my mom, uh, she is one of 12 kids, one of 12, no twins, right? They, they got there the old-fashioned way. My Oma, so they're Dutch, right? So my Oma, she, think about this. She was pregnant for 10 years of her life. Crazy. <laughs> But, y'all, okay, so within big families, uh, man, there's great opportunity for dysfunction in there. Like, the, the bigger the family gets, man, the, the, the more opportunity 
for, for dysfunction and for problems to brew. And so growing up, I remember, man, like within the family, there is these legitimate civil wars, y'all. Like the family just split the, down the middle and it was just side against side. And it was like, they weren't fighting physically, but it, it might as well have been. Like it was brutal, right? You see the civil wars break out within our family. Uh, they divide up against each other. There's always gossip. There's always the, 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 these points of bitterness. I, every time I turned around, there's something. There's always drama. Uh, you know, uh, there's different factions that were fighting for my Oma's approval. Everybody wanted my Oma to be on their side, right? And so it was like, it was like politics. Like I learned politics within the family. And y'all, they're from South America, and so they're loud, right? They're, they're, it just whoever talks louder wins. That's how it works. <laughs> just talking over each other. And so, you know, that, that's how it was. And, you know, my opa, uh, he wasn't really in the picture. Uh, my, my grandfather, he uh, was an abusive father and an abusive husband. Uh, you know, he had, so there's 12 of them. He had more kids outside of wedlock, right? Outside of that marriage, he had other children. Um, their, their marriage ended in divorce. Uh, amidst all this, uh, my family... Uh, they moved from Suriname, from the middle of nowhere, South America, from literally the rainforest to Independence, Missouri in the 70s. Like, can you imagine that? Like just brown people that don't speak the language just showing up on the block in the 70s in Independence, Missouri. Like, like what's up? <laughs> right? Uh, and so it wasn't easy, especially back then. It wasn't easy, right? Uh, and so, you know, I've been studying out the life of Joseph. And as I study out Joseph's life, I can't help but that see the similarities between my, my mom's life and her family and Joseph's, right? Joseph's father was Jacob. Uh, Jacob was married to, to two of his cousins and their two maidservants. So I'm sure that, that played out well, right? No, no. Uh, he goes on to have 12 sons and a girl. So he's got 13 kids total between four different women. How many of you, you know, grew up in a big family? Yeah. How many of you thought you grew up in a big family until just now? <laughs> yeah, some of you are like, yeah, I thought I grew up in a big family. Nah. So 13 total, right? This was a big family. Growing up, Joseph would have witnessed, uh, man, just some, some devastating things, right? He witnessed the unhealthy relationship between his grandfather Laban and his father, right? Uh, as he'd grow older, he'd learn about the unhealthy relationship between his father and his uncle Esau, Uh, They would have been on the move constantly. He would have witnessed his mother die in child labor at an early age. Uh, He would have been uh, seeing the events unfold uh, after his stepsister got raped. Uh, And he would go on to see his brothers retaliate by slaughtering an entire city. And and somehow in the midst of all this chaos, he'd become his father's favorite. You're like, man, that's great, you know. At least he's got a spot with dad. Well, yeah, but that put a target on his back for the rest of the family. All the rest of his brothers hated him. They despised him. And so he would have lived an incredibly lonely childhood, right? It was horrible. It was miserable. And, and all this is taking place at a very young age, right? We see this is just getting through the teenage years, right? He's not even in his 20s yet. And, and all this is unfolding in his life. And so we see just kind of the, the foundation that, that Jacob laid uh, and, you know, the, the opportunity that Joseph would have to say, woe is me. Like, look at the hand that I've been dealt, right? To get down on himself. He, he'd feel justified in being just depressed. And so our key point, number one, is that family dysfunction can derail you or develop you, 
Again, dysfunction within your family has the ability to derail you and to define you where you are perpetually a victim or God can use dysfunction and hardship in your life to, to develop you. But the choice, it's completely up to you. You know, and I don't want to sound insensitive in saying this, but instead of allowing our past woes to define and derail us, we must allow the hardships to develop us. The Lord can use horrible circumstances that were out of control, right? These things that just happened to us. And he can take these travesties and he can work them from good, right? He can look at Job's life and he can use, you know, these horrible things that happened to him and to his family to give him a deeper understanding of who the God of creation is. He can use a man's blindness to show forth the glory of God. He can use persecution to stir up revival. He can use being beaten, sold into slavery, falsely accused, and jailed to develop Joseph into a leader that he needed to be. And so much, so much so that in hindsight, Joseph was able to reflect on his life, on these horrible things that happened to him, on the fact that his brothers literally went on to sell him into slavery. And by Genesis 45, he can look at them and say, God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Right? These horrible things that happened to me, no, that was God actually at work. What? By Genesis 50, uh, Genesis 50 verse 2 or 20, he can say, but as for you, you thought evil against me, right? Selling me into slavery was thinking evil. Like that's, that's, pretty, like that's pretty kind. That's a little bit more than thinking evil against them, right? Uh, th- these things that you thought evil against me, but God meant it to good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. And so these horrible circumstances, these things that happened to him, the travesties in his life, man, God was able to use these things for good. And so we can cling to our past circumstances and hold on to them in a way that allows us to perpetually be a victim, or we can see that we have victory and freedom offered to us through Christ and acknowledge the fact that we are new creatures, right? In Romans 8, 28, it says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. God can use all things for good to those that love him, even the craziest circumstances. And God desires to use these things that we might be conformed to the image of Christ, right? He said it was going to be hard. He said it was going to be hard. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor... uh, uh, How do you say that, Lisa? Revilers, uh, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And And such were some of you. But you're washed, but you're sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. And so Paul here, he defines a lot of things that used to define you, right? This is who you used to be. This used to be your identity, the sins of our past, our old identities. But he makes a profound statement and says, but such were some of you. That's past tense. That's who you used to be. But those things... Uh, those past identities, who you used to be, they're now all washed away in Christ, right? We're new creatures in Christ. Now we're sanctified and justified. Our identity is fixed in Jesus. 
We're no longer bound to past familial failures, to past drama, to past identities, because now we've been adopted into a new family. Hello, somebody, right? I'm a son of God. It doesn't define me anymore. Now we have identities as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And with this perspective, instead of letting pains from our past define and derail us, we have to trust God's providence that he can use all things for good and to use these circumstances to develop us for whatever's next. Right? He wants to use these hardships to develop us for whatever's next. You see, we can't control what happened to us in our past, but we can control our faith response moving forward, right? And so I can't help but, but look out, and, and I know, you know, within our ministry, we've got people that have come from abusive homes. I can look out and I can see people uh, that have had parents that have neglected them as they were growing up. I can look out and, and I can even see people that grew up without fathers or mothers in their home. And it's horrible, right? I can look out and I can know for a fact that all of us at some point have been hurt and let down by close friends and family. And these things, they've got the capacity to completely consume us if we let them. But I want to stress the fact that Joseph's ability to rightly process hardships and these attacks allowed him to rebound, right? It allowed him to come back. He could play the victim. He could wallow. He could feel justified in that and these horrible circumstances that happened to him. And he could allow these things to swallow him up. But despite all of this, he held on to God's promises, right? Despite all of this, he sought purity. Despite all of this, he worked diligently. And maybe most importantly, despite all of this, he was ready to forgive, right? He was ready to forgive and make it right. We must be willing to fulfill our end of the bargain in terms of walking out our biblical responsibilities within the family, regardless of others fulfilling their ends, right? Man, I can't stop loving my wife just because she falls short in some area of our relationship. I can't say until you get that right, mm, nah, right? That's not, that's not how functional relationships work. We have to maintain our end of the bargain regardless of anybody else coming short, regardless. But so often, you know, within, uh, you know, our our parents, spouses, uh, siblings falling short, we believe that we have license to behave however we want because of how we feel. And, And it's not true, right? It's not true. So often we feel justified in our bitterness, in our anger, and in our frustration. But all that does is it sows destruction. All it does is it shows division. Pastor Alan Shelby gave some incredible insight on the anger that Joseph's brothers had towards him. Uh, he says that for Joseph's brothers to get angry with Jacob, and Jacob's their father, would be to face the truth. Instead, they project onto Joseph what was wrong with them, right? And you see that the problem had nothing to do with Joseph, Right? Whenever they sold their brother into slavery, whenever they were mad and bitter and anger at Joseph, the problem had nothing to do with Joseph. The problem is they had a horrible relationship with their father. The problem is that their father neglected them. The, fa- the problem was that their, pro- their father, he played favorites. Right, And because of this, they had this longing desire for paternal approval, for their father's affection. They were jealous and envious of what Joseph had in being the favorite child. And so Joseph became the collateral damage. And we see the same thing played out over and over again in in Scripture, right? In Genesis chapter 4, with the story of Cain and Abel. 
Instead of dealing with his relationship with God the Father, Cain becomes so envious of Abel, and rather than facing the truth and being obedient to God's word, Cain projects onto Abel what's wrong with him, and he kills his own brother. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew him? Because his own works were evil, and his brothers were righteous, Right? And so here we learn that Cain slew Abel for the evil of his own works, right? Not because of what Abel done, but because his own works were evil. And here we discover a profound truth. So often we pour out our hatred and anger on individuals rather than the actual problem, rather than the actual problem. The story of Joseph and his brother's hatred for him, uh, you know, it was because of their own faults, not because of Joseph's faults. And so what we learn here is that we can't afford to harbor hatred or envy against our brothers and sisters. While our own hatred may not result in a literal death of a brother or sister, it literally creates fracturing and disunity within the body of Christ. And that should be enough. And so again, we can't let these dysfunctional relationships, these things that happen to us, define or derail us. Instead, God desires to use these things to develop us for whatever's next. Our key point number two is that sin not dealt with in one generation often passes on to the next. Sin not dealt with in one generation often passes on to the next. And again, we observe this pattern play out biblically and within our society. We see so often that fatherless homes propagate fatherlessness. We see that crime produces more crime. We, we see that, that people being abused often abuse themselves or others. We don't want to perpetuate this victimhood, but also we don't want to ignore problems. And it's worthwhile for us to slow down and consider, man, what is it that I'm reproducing? Right? We, we should all slow down and consider, what are the things that I'm reproducing in my life? But, but also, what are the traps that I'm susceptible to fall into? I think about going to the doctor's office, and one of the first things that they do whenever you go to the doctor's office is they, they give you a bunch of paperwork, right? They're like, here, fill out this packet. You're like, ah, I just want to, just tell me I'm okay, you know? But, but what do they want to know? They, they want to know your family history, right? Hey, do you have this type of cancer in your, your family? Do you have diabetes? Do you have high blood pressure? Like, tell me everything about your family ever. It's like, I don't know, you know? Just, I'm here, Right? But one of the things I do know is that diabetes is common in my family, right? And I know that literally everybody on my father's side, they've got diabetes. And so I know that I'm susceptible to be diagnosed with diabetes. And so there are preventative things that I can be doing even now to, to curb that diagnosis, right? I could be eating right, I could be exercising, and all of that will play out long-term to me avoiding diabetes. I don't want diabetes, right? I don't want it. And so just like medical issues, so often uh, there are these things that, that are passed on within our families that we need to be cognizant and aware of, right? Past familial spiritual failures, sin cycles, knowing that these are areas that we're susceptible to fall prey to. And if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. And so, you know, I think about biblical examples uh, of Abraham. Abraham, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, he failed to protect his wife, Right? Man, whenever he went into Egypt, he's like, hey, Sarah, you're my sister, right? Cool, we got this understanding. And so what, what happens? Man, we see Pharaoh, we see the king of Egypt 
try to, try to get on his wife. And he's like, cool. Like, I'm not going to lay down my, wife, my life for you, right? Which is love. Like, that's biblical love is laying down our lives for others. He's like, I'm not, I don't actually love you. I'm not going to love you like that. And so he just lets whoever's bigger and stronger do whatever he wants with his wife. Ooh, right? That's not good. And so what happens to his son? Well, we see that just like his father, his son Isaac does the exact same thing with his own wife. Hey, you're my sister, right? Cool, I'm not gonna die for you. Ugh. Right, we, we see that passed on. Isaac played favorites, right? He, he loved Esau more than he loved Jacob. And, and what happens with Jacob? Jacob plays favorites, right? He loves Joseph more. It's a favorite son. And we see the dysfunction that's brewed out of that. We see Jacob had sibling rivalry with Esau, and he was willing to deceive to gain his father's blessing. He's willing to deceive to gain his father's blessing. And what do we see in the lives of Joseph's brothers? Right? The same exact thing. And we see this all throughout Scripture. We can see David. He struggled with sexual lust, and he added more wives uh, just to fulfill his desires. And we look at Solomon, and he took it next level, right? This dude had 700 wives, not just more. He had 700, and then he had 300 concubines on top of that. And so we see these cycles over and over again in the Bible. The father establishes this precedent. He has this sin cycle, and it's not dealt with. And so we see it continue to the next generation, right? And so we have to acknowledge the shortcomings of our fathers and mothers so that we can trust God for specific ways of victory in those areas, But we also have to be aware of our own shortcomings. And we have to be willing to be vulnerable, to share and to warn those that we father, both physically and spiritually, so that they won't fall into the same traps. So that they won't fall into the same traps. I'll never forget as a young man, uh, my father, he took me out uh, for lunch. And, uh, you know, it wasn't super normal at that time that he'd reach out and say, hey, let's, let's grab lunch. And so we did it. And he began to, to, to share with me in a very vulnerable way uh, different areas that he'd messed up in terms of financial stewardship with our family, right? He, he just kind of laid it all out for me and different things that he'd done wrong and poorly and, and how it impacted our, uh, our family in a very negative way. And then he'd go on to explain, uh, you know, ways that he could have made it right, ways that he could have been more proactive, actions that he could take. And he was doing all of this so that I wouldn't fall into the same traps, right? It's a conversation that I'll never forget. And Lord willing, uh, it'll help me from making those same mistakes that he did. But he's willing to, to be very vulnerable with me. And if you guys know my father, I, my, my dad's awesome, right? But he's stoic and, and he's proud and, and he only puts his best face forward. And so for him to, to pull back the veil and to be vulnerable... It held a lot of weight, right? And it would have been very difficult for him to do, but man, that's a conversation now that I'll never forget. And those are areas that I know to be weary of, right? It was a great teaching moment. And so as disciples, we must be willing to be vulnerable, to share our past failures that future generations would not repeat them. And as disciples, we must be teachable and ready to receive these lessons. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we see Paul sharing testimonies of their fathers, and he's telling these stories of the nation of Israel as they came out of Egypt. And Paul recounts stories of great victories and of their failures. And he states that these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Right? 
I'm giving you these examples. I'm telling you these stories that we could learn from their mistakes, from the mistakes of previous generations that we would not repeat them. But we see that Jacob was never willing to address his deceptive nature. He was never willing to address his unhealthy relationships with his siblings and the rivalry that he had. And so his own sons were doomed to repeat him. His own sons were doomed to repeat him. In Genesis chapter 37, we see this take place. In verses 18 through 20, it says, When they saw him afar off, speaking of Joseph, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him also, uh, cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. In verse 26 through 27, Judah has this brilliant idea. And he says, hey, why would we kill him if we could profit off of him? Like we could kill him or we could make some cash, right? So he sees more greedy than he is bloodthirsty. And he, he says, you know, we've got no profit if we slay our brother and conceal his blood. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he's our brother in our flesh and his brethren were content. And so we see that they sell him into slavery instead. And so again, we see this sin not dealt with in one generation continue on to the next. And so practical ways that, that we can do is, is really to take stock and consider our lives. Man, what are the areas that, that I find myself falling short in? What are the, the sin cycles that, that, that are common to me? And instead of being ashamed from those things, to learn from those things and be able to share with future generations, how to gain victory over those things, right? To, to have honest conversations with your family, with your parents, with your disciples, and say, hey, what, what are the mistakes that you made as a young man, and, and how can I intentionally avoid those traps, right? Our next key point is that families protect unity. In Genesis chapter 37, 34 through 35, it says that Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins, and mourned for his son many days, right? Joseph, he gets a report that Joseph is dead, right? Jo- Joseph is dead, and, and, and he's grieving this, and so he, he, he's mourning for many days. And, and what happens next is his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. They're like, all right, this is our opportunity. We're going to get around dad. We're going to comfort him, and he's going to love us more because now Joseph's out of the way, right? And so his brothers, his daughters come. They comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I will go down into the grave unto my my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And this is just devastating, right? The the siblings, they thought they got rid of Joseph and thus fixing their problem. And now their relationship with their father is going to be that much sweeter. He's out of the picture. Now we get to be the the, the apple of our father's eye. Now now he's going to have the same type of affection for us. But instead, he says, get away from me. Don't comfort me. I'm going to mourn till the day I die over my son. Right? And so we see that protecting unity within your family has everything to do with maintaining unity with God. In this passage, we see that their broken fellowship with their brother led to a broken fellowship with their father. You catch that? Broken fellowship with their brother led to broken fellowship with their father. And so what does that mean in the context of this body? 
man, you've got brothers and sisters in Christ that Jesus bled and died for. He saw them and said, I love you and I'm willing to give up my life for you. And we can't have a right relationship with them. And we expect to be right with God the Father. It doesn't roll like that, right? He literally died and purchased all of us with his blood. He esteemed us better than himself. He saw us and he said, man, your soul is worth more than this entire world. And this entire world, what does a man gain if he wins the world and loses his soul, right? We see there the value of our soul. It's worth more than this entire world. That's how he sees us. We ought to have right relationships within our body, right? Within our brothers and sisters. <clears throat> in 1 John 2, verse 9, it says, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness. And so in light of Christ's sacrifice, family relationships are worth being right with, Right? Uh, as Sam would say, God's people are worth being right with. Uh, this has to be our heart. It has to be our heart. In Ephesians 4, 29 through 32, it says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away for you with all malice, and do what? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you, right? You've been forgiven much, so you have to be willing to forgive others. In Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35, God tells a story of a servant, right? He, this servant fell into more debt than he would ever be able to repay in his life, right? This dude, it's not looking good, and we see that his master forgave him, right? He's got more debt, right? Some of y'all are like, I know what that means. Like, I'm in student loans, and it's rough, right? And it's like, I'll never be able to pay it off. These student loans, I'll pay them off for the next 20 years. And so that's where this guy is, right? He's got student loans to, to the Art Institute, right? Because it's super expensive for, for, I mean, it's just expensive. Private school, I don't know. So he's got these student loans to our institute, and he's never going to be able to pay it off. But what happens is he finds grace in the eyes of his master, right? And he's forgiven of all the debt that he owes. It's incredible. This is completely grace on the part of the master. He didn't deserve this favor. But the story goes on that this servant had a fellow servant that owed him money. So we're thinking, right, he was just forgiven. He's going to forgive this guy, right? But no, rather than having patience with him, Rather than forgiving him as he was forgiven, we see that servant throw his fellow servant into prison until the debt's paid off, right? Instead of extending the same grace and mercy that he found in his master, he throws this other servant into prison until the debt is paid off. And how do you think things end for this servant? In verse 34, it says that the Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise, shall my heavenly Father do also unto you. That's sobering, right? It's sobering. And so why do I say this? Well, Joseph's brothers, they were quick to throw Joseph away, and it hindered their fellowship with the Father. And when we throw our brothers and sisters in Christ away, it hinders our fellowship with the Father. But let's look at Joseph's example. I mean, literally at 22 years later, right? Joseph's sold into slavery, and 22 years later, 
Joseph would see his brothers again. 22 years passed, right? And you would think that in 22 years, man, he'd be stewing and, and thinking that on this thing that happened to him, the fact that his brothers sold him into slavery, and, and just planning how he's going to retaliate, how he's going to get back at him, uh, how he's going to get vengeance is going to be his, says Joseph, right? Like, he's just planning it out, man. The next time I see these dudes, it's over, right? Like, we're just, the, the crew's going to roll up, and it's just, it's donezo. But look what he says. He says, and thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, right? He sees him, and he says, hey, you guys, there's famine everywhere. You guys got to come to me. Dwell in the land of Goshen, for thou shalt be near to me. I want you close to me. Thou and thy children and thy children's children and thy flocks and thy herds and all that thou hast, and there will I nourish thee. For yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. Moreover, he, he kissed his brethren and wept upon them. And, and after that, his brethren talked with him. He sees them. It's been 22 years, and they sold him into slavery. And he says, guys, you got to come. Like, I'm better now. Like, look at me. Like, I'm a number two man in all of Egypt. Like, the Lord's dealt bountifully with me, Right? I, I can provide for you. Come, I want to nourish you and your children and your children's children. I want you to be close to me. And, and he kisses them and he loves them, right? Do you see Joseph's heart? It was for his brothers. He nourished them. He provided for them and their children and their children's children. He wept over them. He loved them. And in light of this reconciliation, we see that Jacob, their father, he was revived, Right? But because now his children were together, and because they were right, we see this revival take place in the life of Jacob. He's happy. My, my, my sons dwell together in unity. In verse 25, it says, And they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father. Like, all right, we got to go tell, gotta tell dad. We found our lost brother, right? And told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive. And not just that, but now he's the governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. I was like, man, stop playing with it. It's not funny. I know April Fool's Day is just around the corner, but this is not funny, <laughs> right? And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry them, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Oh, my, my son, he, he's still alive? And you guys are getting together? He wants us all to live together? Oh man, that just warmed the cockles of Joseph's heart or Jacob's heart, right? Jacob was revived at the news of Joseph. Jacob is this really is a great type of God the Father. And we see the relationship with Joseph reconciled. And, and the point we learn here is that God loves it when his kids get along. Right? He loves it when his kids get along. When we choose to dwell together in unity. And so this brings us to, to really our, our last section that we're going to uh, explore today. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about the purpose of the family. We've seen that there's always attack on the family. Uh, we've seen some practical ways in which we can examine our own lives and our own families and see that dysfunction happens, and yet we have to prioritize right relationships with them because that directly impacts our relationship with God. Um, but uh, one of the most difficult areas to navigate is, man, you know, 
I'm 18 years old, and I came to study at UMKC, the Art Institute, and some dude invited me to Bible study, and now I'm seeing God's word over my life, and I gave my life to Christ, and I want to live for him, and my family's, they're not saved. They don't know Jesus, and they're far from him. But man, I love my family, right? They raised me. They gave me a good life. What does it look like for me to minister to my family? I mean, you know, who hasn't had those thoughts, right? Man, I've got family members that are far from God. How do I I reach them? How do I reach them? And guys, this is the area that that, that got me. This is the area that I wept uh, as I prepared because, man, I've got members in my family that are far from God. Uh, how, how do I maintain my, you know, the, the honor that I have for them? How do I love them and, and still minister to them? Uh, though I might be younger than them, though, though it might be very, very intimidating to approach, you know, they, they say that ministry runs on the rails of relationships. <laughs> what about family relationships? Like, those are a doozy, right? And so this is a heavy topic, and I'll confess that I don't have all the answers, uh, but I'm just going to pop around and give just a, a few nuggets that the Lord showed me. Uh, you see, Joseph was faithful to God, right? We see 22 years from when he's sold into slavery until he sees his siblings again. And in that 22-year span, all we see is Joseph's faithfulness to the Lord, right? Joseph was faithful to God, and he was patient with his siblings. And so what, what was God? God was faithful to Joseph by being patient with his siblings, wasn't he? Right? And so we have to prioritize our faithfulness to the Lord, And so what do I mean by this? Joseph was clearly God's man. He walked with the Lord. He pursued purity. He was used mightily by God. And his brothers attacked him and threw him into slavery. And so God would have been justified in going after his brothers. God would have been justified in in, in just cursing them and and allowing evil to constantly follow them. But God instead would use Joseph through the affairs of life to draw them to the end of themselves to a point of, uh, of reckoning and reconciliation. And so for, for us, you know, oftentimes we have this urgency to see our family saved. And, and I would say rightfully so, right? Uh, but often we're, we're zealous, right? And, and our zealousness is misapplied. And, and we've just learned the Bible and it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. And now we're, we're, we're shoving all 66 books down someone's throat because they, we want them to be excited and to know the things that, that we're excited about and that, that we know now, right? And so we're just taking the Bible and we're just like slapping people with it. And like, yeah, hey, you, you gotta love Jesus now, right? Like, and it's not working. And instead it's pushing them away. And, you know, for Joseph, he received two dreams from the Lord in Genesis 37. And he shared these dreams with his family. Hey, this is what God's word says. Like God spoke to me. This is what he's communicating and they hated him for it, right? Like, oh, what? that's not how it's supposed to go. Well, he zealously shared with his family, and they just couldn't handle the truth. They couldn't receive it. And so, you know, we live in this fast food culture, and we want everything to come quick. And, and oftentimes, some of the best things, they're, they're slow roasted and micro, not microwaved, right? <laughs> not microwaves. <clears throat> and so oftentimes, the testimony... Our testimony observed over time uh, serves as a witness to all who are watching. For Joseph, it was more than 20 years between his initial dream and his siblings receiving him. And while I hope this isn't the case for you, we must be willing to stick it out for the long haul. 
In those 20 years, Joseph's brothers got to see his character proved out, right? The things that you're saying match your character. And God's promises proved out in his life. Hey, you told us 22 years ago that things would, these things would come to be, and, and now they are, right? They got to see his character. They got to see God's word proved out in his life over 20 years. I'm going to use Nick Hatton as an example. Uh, Nick, he's one of my best friends. Uh, and he's someone that I look up to in a lot of ways. Uh, he's really smart, right? He's a great husband and father. Uh, he's really good at skateboarding. Uh, he's diligent and he's organized, and he's been used mightily by God uh, to minister to his family. Uh, I talked to Nick the other day, and he told me that he'd been praying for his parents for, for four years. Four years. Uh, and they, you know, God's just been moving mightily in their, their life over this past really a few months, right, uh, that God's just been doing a great work in, in, in your family. And Nick's approach was taking the opportunity for spiritual conversations as they came up naturally. And again, he prayed faithfully for four years. And as opportunities came, he invited them to church, and he just asked up front, hey, commit to four Sundays in a row. Just plan to, to be here. Be here faithfully for four Sundays in a row and come with questions Right? And after four weeks, man, just let's reevaluate. And if you want to continue, so be it. And if not, you know, no, no worries. It's such a practical approach. Just come and see. And so what does it look like to minister to our families? Well, like Joseph, we have to be willing to confront them with truth. Right? And, and, and Genesis 37, he confronts them with the truth, with, with what God gave to him through this dream. And he confronts them, man, thus saith the Lord. This is what God said. And, and they rejected it. But we have to be willing to, to apply the reality of the gospel to their life. And then it looks like desperate seasons of prayer. It looks like an unwavering, steadfast, and pursuit of the Lord on our part, regardless of what they say and of what they think. Uh, we can look at Christ's example. In Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 34, uh, we, we see Jesus Christ, right, the perfect man in his approach to ministering to his family. In verse 31, it says, There came his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him, and the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy brother, or thy mother and thy brethren without seek thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. And so this can sound like really tough words, right? In Mark chapter 3, verses 31, we see Jesus teaching a multitude. We see his brothers and his mother come, and the text tells us that they're standing without. His brother and his mother, they're, they're standing without, right? And they were summoning Jesus to come to them. And this passage is very quick, and it's easy to fly over, but there's so much here, right? It reveals a great deal about where his family was at. His mother and his brother, they were, they were not numbered amongst the multitude that were listening to Jesus, right? And, and neither did they desire to be. What they were trying to do, they were without, and they're trying to, to, to pull Jesus away from the ministry that God had for him. Like, hey, you're doing this thing, but come to us instead. Like, like hey, I know that, that Sunday mornings are really important to you, but you should come hang out with us instead. Like, hey, I know that you've got a spring retreat going on this weekend, but like the KU game's going on. Right? Some of you are like, what's the score? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> right? 
And, and so they're saying, hey, there's this thing that the Lord has for you. But instead of you being faithful to that thing, like how about you come away from it? How about we draw you away from that? We don't want to be in it with you. We don't want to be within, numbered amongst the multitude. We're going to hang out out here, and we'd love it if you came with us, right? In this moment, Jesus clarifies that his family are those that hear the word of God and do it. And this is a profound passage in understanding the significance of the spiritual family that we have in Christ and the importance of faithfulness to God's work. For many of us, our families see us getting more serious about our walks, right? And and some of them, they they might have good intentions, but the desire to quench the fire that we have for Jesus Christ. And they call us away from ministry activity, and they call us away from faithfulness. They they see us go from from partying on Saturday evenings uh, to prioritizing waking up early on Sundays to attend church. They see us reading our Bibles. Uh, They notice small things in our life, like the fact that we stopped cussing, I like the old you, right? Who's heard that, right? Hey, I, I like the old you, right? They, they, they see that we don't like to be around belligerence and drunkenness, and they begin to, to, to voice their concerns. And in these instances, God chose a spiritual family. Jesus chose a spiritual family. And, and I want to make sure that I clarify that this wasn't to the neglect of his physical family, because you could read that into this text, right? But it's not true. We see that he, he still loved and cared for his physical family, even until his death, where he charged his own disciple John to take care of his mother in his stead because he loved her and he wanted to make sure that she was taken care of. And while we find his family without in Mark chapter 3, we see a really beautiful thing by Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, because of Jesus' faithfulness, And because of his commitment to to, to the work that God had before him, even unto death, we see that his family was now within. They were numbered amongst the disciples who met in the upper room after Christ's ascension. In Acts chapter 1, verses 13, it lists all the disciples that met together in the upper room. And in verse 14, it says that they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Man, praise the Lord, right? His family was there. His family was there. Uh, I think about uh, Abby Marsh. Uh, you know, just recently her father got baptized. Uh, and it was just awesome. And amidst his baptism, uh, you know, he, he was just testifying of, of how God led him to that point. And, and he said that the, the faithfulness and consecration of his children's walk, in particular his daughter Abby, and their faithfulness convicted him. He saw the, the reality of their walk, the fact that even on vacation, they're willing to, 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 to get up early to meet with God and to protect that time. And it convicted him. And, and he desired to know what was different about their relationship with Christ. There's something real there. Like, what, what's going on with my kids? And, and now what, they drive like an hour just to be here on Sunday mornings. Right? That, man, something's going on with my kids. I see the change. I see their, their faithfulness and their commitment to God, and I don't understand it, so I'm going to drive an hour to check it out. And, and now he's testifying before the whole church on Sunday morning as he's getting baptized and saying, I want you to keep me accountable as I continue to pursue the Lord. And they're willing to drive an hour, one way, just to be here, to be a part of the body. Right? It's beautiful. 
Think about my buddy Andy Cardona uh, and his brother saw Andy go from a state of depression to, to, to a state of joy. Andy went from a homebody to attending church and, you know, even prioritizing church activities over family activities. And by Andy's faithfulness, even though his brother was skeptical, he knew that there was something real and authentic about his brother's walk. And so he came to check it out. And now Andy's brother is one of the growing leaders in the class A Hispana. And he's translating uh, many of the LFBI materials and classes into Spanish that's now being used all over the world, right? Because of his brother's faithfulness. And so I just say this to encourage you, man, for, for, for Joseph, he, he spoke truth to his family and it was 20 years before we saw reconciliation, but he was faithful to the work that God had him and God used that to come full circle to reach his family. Can we trust God in that way? Some plant, others water, but God brings the increase. Some plant, others water, but God brings the increase. For Nick and Abby, uh, when I was just questioning them about how God used them in their families' lives, they both told me that they were at peace, that it didn't need to be them that did the work. Right? It didn't need to be them that, 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 that was the leader in their parents' life. Right? They both committed to prayer and extended the invitation to their parents. And for both of them, ultimately, God used Chris best to minister to them, right? It wasn't them. They extended the invitation that they were faithful to pray, and God used someone else to, 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 to lead them further, like to, to minister to them, to relate to them. Are you desperately praying and interceding for your family? And Chris is like about to, like he's discipling both of them, if I'm not mistaken, or at least like you're, yeah, right? Awesome. But we have to ask ourselves, are we desperately praying and interceding for our families? Maybe God won't have you leading them spiritually, but your prayers will absolutely carve the way. Your prayers will absolutely carve the way. I'm so comforted by the testimony of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. It says in John chapter 4, 39, that this Samaritan woman, this woman at the well, uh, uh, it says that many of the Samaritans of the city believed on Jesus for the saying of the woman, right? She goes into the city and she's just screaming and testifying of Jesus, right? You got to meet this guy. He knows everything about me. It says that many believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified. He told me all that ever I did, right? So, so many believed because of this woman's testimony. But, but check out the next verse in 41. It says, and many more believed on uh, because of his own word and said unto the woman, now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves. And now that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. Right. And so we see this woman go in and she's testifying and, and man, praise the Lord. Many believe because of what she said, but many more believe because they came and examined the evidence for themselves. Lord willing, many will believe because of your testimony but man, maybe many will believe just because of your invitation, because of your prayers. It'll draw them to a place where someone else can water, right? We must be diligent. We must be willing to introduce our families to Christ. We must be willing to introduce our families to Christ. You know, uh, we can assume that, that God wants to use us uh, in a very passive way. 
And maybe you heard the last point and think that that gives license for you uh, just to, to, to live a casual Christian life. And man, they're going to see that I love Jesus and that's going to call them to a place of being here. But they need your invitation. They, they, they need you to, to, to speak boldly about what God's doing in your life. They, they, they need you to, to, to say, come and see. They need you to, to invite them to, 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 to church on Sundays, to Bible studies. Think about John chapter 1, verses 40 through 42. It says, one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. So here we see Andrew met Jesus. Right? He, we, we see him following Jesus, and the first thing he does after acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah, after acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ, the first thing he does is he runs, he finds his brother, and he introduces his brother to Christ. And as we study out the relationships of the disciples, we see that six of the 12 disciples are related by blood, right? John and James were brothers. Judas and James were brothers. Simon and Andrew were brothers. There's something special about the sibling dynamic, we have unique opportunities and responsibilities to encourage our siblings in their relationship with Christ. Even Mary and Martha are seen interceding on behalf of their brother, and it leads to new life for him, right? In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, we see that their brother Lazarus is dying. He's dying. And so his sisters, they get together and they call Jesus. Jesus, come. Like Lazarus is about to die, come and heal him. They're, they're, they're interceding on behalf of their brother, right? And Jesus comes and gives Lazarus a new life because of the prayers, because of the intercessions of Mary and Martha. We have a great privilege and responsibility not only to, to, to walk, you know, a life that testifies of God, but to pray for our families and to invite them to come and meet Jesus, to come and meet Jesus. So in closing, I know that, that many of us, you know, may be struggling with ongoing dysfunction in our families. Many of us struggle uh, because our, our, our physical families are not yet part of our spiritual family. Uh, and these topics, again, there's so much deeper and so much more that we can unpack in the Word of God, but, but time, you know, it restrains us. And so how do we make these things practical uh, as we move on throughout the week? Some of us grew up with dysfunctional families, and we've allowed these points of dysfunction, the, the, these failed relationships, to derail us and to define us, right? This has been your justification for remaining bitter, for remaining angry, and for being stunted in your growth. And if this is you, as we close, and the worship team, feel, feel free to start coming up, I'm inviting you to come forward to meet with a counselor, to, to lay these things down before Jesus, Right? Because our past identities, these things that we're holding on to, they don't define us anymore. Now you're a new creature. Right? You're, you're a new creature in Christ. Some of us are holding on to bitterness and hatred against family or even a brother or sister in Christ. And we find that it's actually hindering our relationship with our Father God. And if this is you, I'm begging you even now to seek reconciliation. That might look like finding a brother and sister now and, and confessing, man, this is a a root of bitterness that I have against you. I'm sorry, will you forgive me, right? And many of us see that we have a responsibility to be lights that draw our physical families 
into relationship with Christ, right? So that they can become part of our spiritual family. And if this is you, let's begin now through desperate prayers of intercession. That's something that we can do even now, right? And lastly, some of us don't even know if we belong to God's family. And I would like to personally invite you, if you're saying, man, you know, I, I understand this physical family component. What are you talking about, a spiritual family? Well, I'd love to invite you forward. I'd love to, to meet with you, uh, to tell you about Jesus and to tell you about God the Father uh, because it is the most sweet, it is the most perfect family relationship that you can enter into, is entering into the love of God the Father, right? And so uh, I'm going to pray for you. Uh, and there's going to be counselors up front. Uh, but, but if any of those points hit you, uh, the, then my prayer is that you, you would respond, right? Uh, is that you'd come and, and lay these sound things down before the Lord. That you'd find a, a brother and sister and be right with them. And, and who can't pray for, for family, right? Are you desperate that God would know your family, that they would be saved? Uh, it's time to pray now. And so, Lord, we, we see the things that you've called us to. Uh, in your family, uh, and we see your example, and we're so thankful for it. And Lord, we just pray uh, that we would protect right relationships within our family because we know it's such a beautiful picture uh, of what you desire. And Lord, we're desperate that you'd move in the lives of our families, Lord. And so Lord, we pray for salvation and revival in our families, that you'd be glorified through them, that your mission would extend through our families, that reproduction would happen through our families, uh, and that you'd be glorified. And so, Lord, we, we give this to you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.